Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. By now, you've already noticed that this is not Jonah Goldberg's voice. This is David French uh, from his colleague at The Dispatch. I'm filling in for Jonah, who is, I believe, out traveling something that's novel and new and interesting in this age of coronavirus. But don't hit pause on that uh, on your iPhone. Don't hit pause on your Android or wherever you're listening to this podcast. You've, I've got a great podcast for you. I'm going to be talking to my good friend, Yasha Monk. Yasha, is, he's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, an associate professor at Johns Hopkins, senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund, senior advisor at Protect Democracy, and also, he is a fellow member of the Substack Pirate class. He started a new publication on Substack called Persuasion. And I'm, I'm very honored to be on the board of advisors of Persuasion. But uh, essentially, well, Yasha, why don't, why don't you describe what Persuasion is, and then we'll launch into our conversation. Uh, yeah, yes, uh, we're both uh, some of a uh, Substack karate, apparently. Um, <laughs> Indeed. The, look, a persuasion um, comes from a frustration with the paucity of publications and uh, newspapers and magazines in the country that explicitly pledge themselves to defending philosophically liberal values. Um, we've seen um, a sort of growing orthodoxy, not at every publication, not at every magazine, but at many publications and magazines, that make it very hard to uh, challenge especially some of the uh, sort of illiberal ideas on uh, the left. There's also plenty of illiberal ideas on the right, but um, you know, it is easier within the pages of, for example, the New York Times or the Washington Post uh, to challenge those. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to assemble uh, you know, a great group of writers, some of whom are from the left and some of whom are more from the right, um, who share a commitment to the idea uh, that we should persuade rather than mock, and that we should stand up for ideals like free speech, um, uh, like civil discourse, um, uh, and like freedom of democracy, especially internationally. Well, the reason I wanted to have Yasha on, uh, one, it's always fascinating to talk to Yasha. 
especially when we're talking about uh, threats to liberal democracy. Again, we're talking about small L liberal democracy. Um, but also, I think it's a really good time to check in on the overall status against on the fight against illiberalism, uh, on the status of the fight against illiberalism on the left and illiberalism on the right after 2020, because this was an interest, very, very interesting election. It didn't go the way I think most people thought it would go. I think most folks thought Joe Biden would win, of course. I mean, that was what all the polls told us. They didn't know it would be this close. But the smart money was not betting that the that the Democrats would lose seats in the House and in all likelihood, uh, we'll have to see how the Georgia special election goes out, uh, not gain back the Senate. And I guess one of the things that I, I want to ask you, Yasha, is do you think that this electoral outcome is going to have any kind of consequence for the battle on the left? And then we'll talk later about the right. Um, the battle on the left between liberalism and illiberalism, and also sort of your thoughts on the overall status of that fight. Well, let, let me start with a slightly more optimistic note, perhaps, um, uncharacteristic. I, I love optimism. <laughs> um, look, um, it, it's really hard to beat an incumbent president, and it's really hard to beat an authoritarian populist. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a political scientist who studies populist movements around the world, and the kind of univocal, definitive, decisive uh, victory over an incumbent populist that many uh, Americans were understandably hoping for just very rarely happens. Most of the time, these people are in government for 10, 12, 15 years around the world. And so the fact that Americans actually defeated Donald Trump um, you know, after his first term in office, I think is a really significant event. And it is obviously um uh, an important uh, uh harbinger for the fight against authoritarian populism around the world so i think that's the most important um takeaway from the election i'm less depressed by it than some of my friends and colleagues on the left um you are right though that there is a, a set of things about the election that didn't exactly go the way uh, that a lot of people expected this is in part because um the outcome was a little bit more narrow uh, than the polls predicted, but it's also because of a lot of very interesting data points under the hood. Um, mm -hmm. You know, to me, the, one of the most dangerous ideas in American politics is this idea of a rising demographic majority for Democrats, because it makes the left uh, triumphalist and think that it doesn't need to engage in persuasion, but it can take sort of future victories for granted. And it makes a lot of the right uh, paranoid. It makes them think that, um, you know, they can't uh, 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 win in the future, so they have to engage in voter suppression and other tactics in order uh, to delay that as much as possible. This famous Flight 93 election essay by Michael Anton in 2016 is a good example of that. Well, uh, this election, and this is also good news, has been um, uh, a, a real counterpoint against this idea of a rising demographic majority. Um, you know, Donald Trump held... Florida because of the strong support of Hispanic voters. Uh, but it's not just Cubans and Venezuelans in Miami right. who have particular reason uh, to be skeptical of a party that increasingly brands itself and parts of it uh, as socialist. Um, it's also Mexican-Americans at the, you know, in Southwest Texas, 
who really swung uh, towards uh, uh, Trump. Um, in fact, even in Pennsylvania, uh, one of the things that makes the president's uh, claims of voter fraud so unbelievable, uh, you know, Biden basically gained in every county other than in Philadelphia. And you see the same in, in different <laughs> counties around the country. Um, another really interesting thing is when you look at California, which is supposedly the future of American politics, a majority-minority state uh, in which uh, the share of uh, non-Hispanic white voters is already down to something like 40%. Uh, there was a very interesting referendum there to overturn the state's ban on affirmative action in universities and colleges like Berkeley and UCLA and in uh, local state government, uh, local and state government. Um, the people who wanted to overturn this ban on affirmative action had a 12 to 1, 13 to 1 funding advantage. And yet this majority-minority population uh, rejected it, which again shows something about the limits of America's appetite for a lot of the things that progressives think will, will naturally come to pass once the country is majority-minority. So all of that, you would think, would make the left of the Democratic Party really sit up and say, hang on a second, uh, we can't take the votes of minority voters for granted. Socialism is really repelling uh, key voter groups. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, you know, the minority coalition, which still is important in our own ranks, isn't really into, uh, let alone critical race theory, it's not even into relatively anodyne forms of affirmative action. So really our basic mm -hmm. narrative is wrong. Um, I see some very smart voices taking note of that. Uh, David Shaw, who was fired by Civis Analytics in June, who is a self-described socialist, very far left, um, but a very smart and serious analyst of, of, of data and of, 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 of the electoral landscape, um, has basically drawn that conclusion. And there's been a few articles about that. Um, but there isn't a broad-based recognition of the extent to which uh, this election uh, sort of cuts into the progressive narrative. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the real base of uh, socialism within the Democratic Party, or the real base of some of the nutty ideas uh, on cultural questions, isn't in Congress, where relatively right. few Democrats actually buy this. It's not in the leadership of a Democratic Party, where people like Joe Biden have uh, won in part because they very effectively denounced or uh, at least did not endorse that. It is in the big foundations that fund this. It is in a lot of universities that perpetuate this. And it is in the newspapers and magazines that think uh, that, you know, AOC and Ilhan Omar is the face of the future median voter in the United States, uh, when already they clearly are not. You know, there's something, you, what's really interesting about that analysis, and, it, and in many ways mirrors some of my own analysis about what's happening on the right, is that the people who are held accountable in these elections uh, are not necessarily, or are in fact not the people who are driving the cultural conflict. These congressmen, these senators, with very few, if any, exceptions at all, are not sort of the pop culture figures that are driving um, ideological engagement in institutions outside of Washington, D.C. They're not the people who 
create, for example, sort of like the online shame storms or the online, the, the cancel culture. Rarely are you having a congressman leading a cancel culture charge, say against a comedian with bad tweets or against a data analyst like David Shore, who cut against the grain on what was an emerging consensus about protests this summer, far left consensus about protests. So what ends up happening is the politicians are often held accountable for waves that they didn't create and kind of just sort of ride. <laughs> and, and it was really interesting to me to see the accounts of the House caucus meeting, House Democratic caucus meeting after the election and the emotion that was reported from some of these moderate Democrats against these ideas that became very fashionable very quickly online, like, you know, defund the police, for example, which is just completely toxic as an ele in, in electoral politics, just toxic. It's completely toxic if you're wanting to build any kind of ideological majority at all. And yet for a while this summer, if you if your life was on Twitter, it was toxic to oppose defund the police. And uh, but, you know, as I was reading that, I, I kept in reading this sort of revolt of the Democratic moderates in this meeting. Part of me was wondering, I had two conflicting thoughts. Was one, well, this sort of puts to the lie the notion that Democratic politicians are always going to be in lockstep support of their base, online base. But B, the question that I then had is how much does it matter? that they oppose sort of these fashionable trends and, and online leftism. And, and I think that, that remains to be seen how much it matters um, when, you know, like a representative Clyburn comes out and says, um, you know, that some of these far left ideas were, were uh, to politically toxic. Does that even matter to say that the class of activists who, um, you know, expelled James Bennett from the New York Times or expelled David Shore from, from his employer or all of the other cancel culture incidents we've heard about. Do, does that even matter? And, I, I, and that's something I don't know the answer to. And I, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, I have two competing instincts on that. So, uh, you know, again, the good news from this election is that if you think of Joe Biden as being very moderate within his party, and if you think of Donald Trump as being extreme within his political party, um, the voting behavior of the American public clearly indicates a preference for moderation over extremism. So it's mm -hmm. interesting that on the Republican side, um, the Republican congressmen and senators vastly overperformed, outperformed Donald Trump. Right. I mean, you know, that, that has to be the case logically if Republicans did better than expected in the House and Senate and the loss of presidency. But you can go state by state, district by district, and this turns out to be true. There are very few people where Donald Trump performed better than the local senatorial or congressional uh, candidate. Uh, so actually this shows that Donald Trump is not this unique political talent who is somehow able to beat Democrats when nobody else uh, was able to. Uh, on the contrary, it seems to suggest uh, that he's been a liability for the Republican Party in important ways. And I think that's something um, that's important to recognize. Now, by the way, the same is true on the Democratic side. Joe Biden vastly outperformed um, uh, many congressmen and senators. And this was especially true with the most progressive congressmen and senators, even yeah. in deep blue districts. So when you look at Ilhan Omar, when you look at AOC, they both did significantly less well in the districts than Joe Biden did. So the idea right. that even those districts are clamoring for the brand of politics um, doesn't seem 
to be all that straightforwardly true. So I think the good news here is that if political parties can manage to A, field more moderate candidates, and B, ensure that they're actually perceived as moderates, um, then we're going to do very well. Um, and over the long run, this should push American politics more back towards moderation than we've recognized so far. Now, there's two problems with that. Um, the first is that these political parties may continue to be under the delusion that they need to run extremists to um, uh, rally the base, uh, or there's, there may just be something about primaries that um, prioritizes the voices of those who are most politically engaged, who are also often those who are least moderate. Um, and so the people who keep winning primaries are extreme. And if Democrats and Republicans keep win- running extreme candidates, um, then one of them has got to win. Um, right. uh, and the other thing that is, I think, specifically a problem for Democrats, but perhaps also for Republicans, is that so much of the media landscape and infrastructure and so much of the sort of mainstream institutions have now bought into the far-left narrative that you can have a congressional delegation in which 90% of people are relatively moderate and reasonable, um, but the perception the public has of that congressional delegation would still continue to be set and defined by two or three of the people who are most extreme. I mean, let's put it this way. There are three Democrats in the outgoing Congress who are members of the Democratic Socialists of America. Of those three members of the DSA, two are part of a squad. And it's, of course, mm-hmm. the squad that, to most Americans, is really the face of House Democrats. So you see right. that sort of the most radical fringe of a congressional delegation is what's seen by most Americans as what Democrats in Congress are like. Well, and part of that is a product. I mean, nobody talks about the squad more than conservative media. Um, so conservative media elevates the squad as completely representative of larger Democrats. However, nobody made Nancy Pelosi pose with most of the squad on the cover of Rolling Stone when they won. Um, yeah, and which, AOC was just on the cover of Vogue. I mean, I, I agree that this is, I mean, perhaps there's two big areas in which the left and the right oddly agree. One is sort of this idea of a rising demographic majority, which again, for reasons of its own, both a lot of liberals and a lot of conservatives believe in, even for I think is complete bunk. Um, but the second interesting is that both, um, you know, Vogue and Fox News think it's in their interests to, um, you know, feature AOC in every way they can. Now, I think probably Fox News right. is smarter about the strategic team in Vogue. I think this actually harms Democrats more than hurts, more than helps them. Um, but they are also oddly in cahoots on this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you've got a small number of people who want to push the Democrats far to the left, I mean, AOC is your ambassador. If you've got a huge number of people who want to define the Democrats as being far to the left, well, AOC is your symbol. And so, yeah, I I think absolutely that is, you know, that's the dynamic in play and you see it almost on a daily basis. And it's interesting though, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting because the, the Republicans have elected in some very, very safe red districts, some pretty Interesting characters, among them Marjorie Green, this hmm. this QAnon supporter, CrossFit fanatic, um, far right extremist who's already become notorious for just mocking masking on the Hill. And it's going to be very interesting to see 
if a similar dynamic plays out where in essence the house republican delegation is going to get increasingly defined by uh say an an uh, a, Mar- a marjorie green type character or this you know madison cawthorn who this week came under fire for what i think is a unfair idea about religious conversion he was put under he was under fire cuz he believes that christians should cry, try to convert uh jews and muslims which so long as that's not coercive, that's just classic um, uh, Christian evangelism theology, but has come under fire for some, you know, legitimate reasons. And also, you know, his victory statement after when he, his first victory statement when he won on election night was cry more libs. Um, oh my God. And, and so you, I wonder if you're going to see an interesting kind of strategic dynamic playing out or a tactical dynamic playing out where you're going to have some of these really extreme outlier GOP representatives who then become sort of the face of the new GOP, um, both from the standpoint of the hard, hardcore right wants to promote them because they're tough, they fight, they don't back down, they make the liberals cry. And then from a democratic world that says, hey, do you want these people? This is the future of the GOP. So that they become both a, you know, an inspiration for the far right and a symbol for the left of what the far right, what the right will become. It's going to be interesting to see if there's a mirror image dynamic that plays out there. So there's a mutual symbiosis where the sort of left-leaning and the right-leaning media uh, is sort of complicit in elevating the most extreme voters on both sides. And sort of interestingly, you know, right-leaning media think it's in our interest to emphasize people like uh, Kofon. Um, and the left media thinks, well, it's in our interest to emphasize Kofon because l- look at what an idiot he is. Uh, and then the sort of roles are flipped or reversed on the other side. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that these figures are exactly equivalent, but right. which I don't think they are. But um, uh, uh, but, but that is an interesting uh, uh, sort of media dynamic in the media, right? That that yeah. actually. Um, both the our side and the other side media have an interest in emphasizing um, more extreme candidates in a way that um, makes us really lose where the American public is at. Yeah, this is this is a continuation of that phenomenon I've talked about a lot. I didn't come up with the term um, nut picking, <laughs> right? Um, which isn't exactly it doesn't exactly fit, but it's a sort of a variation of it. Is when you this comes from a I think a Kevin Drum commenter from like the early, the blogosphere, um, like 2006. And it, and it essentially means when you elevate somebody who is atypical or perhaps more extreme than the norm and, uh, on, on your, on the opposing side and you cast them as the norm. So you see this on Twitter all of the time where there's always going to be a blue check mark somewhere saying something ludicrous. Always. You it, it's it will never fail. There's always a blue check mark saying something ridiculous. And you can elevate that blue check mark, you know, with the classic quote retweet and say, Oh, see, this is what they are really like, as opposed to this is what he or she is really like. This is what they are really like, that the extreme becomes the stand-in for the norm. And I think you saw a lot of that frustration bubbling over in the Cong- in the House Democratic caucus where they're saying everything that the most extreme person says in our caucus is tied to all of us. Right. And 
that's what that's the dynamic that happens. And I I honestly, Yasha, I don't see a way out of that because there's just so much to be gained, <laughs> both from sort of a bottom line media standpoint and from a tactical political standpoint to constantly tie your opponent to their most extreme element. And there's always going to be an extreme element, especially with these highly gerrymandered congressional districts where the only meaningful contest you have is in your party primary. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess part of it is about the our side media, right? I mean, look, mm-hmm. there's, there's a line that um, Bernie Sanders used to use and that Pete Buttigieg, to my surprise, also embraced in the primaries, which I think uh, gets things fundamentally wrong. Um, and that's, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of uh, and embracing the label socialist because Republicans are always going to call us socialist no matter what. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that really misunderstands the, the dynamics of politics. And frankly, it underestimates the intelligence of average Americans. It is true that Fox News and Republicans kept Bar- called Barack Obama a socialist over and over for years. Yeah. But Americans weren't persuaded by it. And they re-elected Barack Obama, uh, you know, with a pretty healthy victory. And Obama remains a very popular figure. And that's because Obama didn't give people ammunition to make the charge stick. Uh, And so, yes, of course, people will call every Democrat a socialist. I'm sure somebody is calling Joe Biden a socialist as we speak. But Americans look at Joe Biden and they think, is this an extremist I have to be scared of? Nah. Right? Right. So... You know, I think in that sense, you know, if Republicans nominate in 2024 a reasonable presidential candidate, and if that candidate perhaps um, actually has the courage to um, criticize Marjorie Greene and people like that, right. then most Americans will say, you know what, even for MSNBC is always going on about Marjorie Greene. Um, I don't think that, you know, whoever it is who's going to run, I mean, let's say, you know, Marco Rubio, I don't know if that's a plausible prospect, um, but let's say Marco Rubio. You know, I don't think that Marco Rubio is really that similar to Marjorie Green. So I'm not really scared by this, right? But right. if the candidate um, keeps posing with Marjorie Green and keeps elevating their, um, uh, their content and uh, refuses to actually denounce them, and if Marjorie Green is, you know, the poster girl of Fox News and the Wall Street Journal, um, and you can't criticize Marjorie Greene in the Wall Street Journal without potentially losing your job, well, then it's much more likely that she effectively does become the face of Republicans, right? Or, or it might be more likely that Marjorie Greene become the poster child of, of Newsmax and, or One American News Network. <laughs> and Trump TV. <laughs> and, Trump, and Trump TV. Yeah, you know, I'm, I am completely, so I am completely with you on the idea that the voters took a look at what was happening in this country. And in many ways, I I would characterize the 2020 outcome because it it, it was actually the outcome. And we probably disagree on this desired outcome. My desired outcome was that Trump would lose and the Republicans would keep the Senate. That that was my desired outcome because I, I was in this position of believing that Donald Trump deserved to lose but the left did not deserve to win, <laughs> if, if that made sense. In other words, the, 
the agenda that was going to come from unified democratic control. I didn't want that agenda to win, but I thought that Donald Trump deserved to lose. And in many ways, you might say that the outcome of 2020 was sort of the most almost centrist possible outcome in a, in a way that the center held and in, in a way that a lot of people wouldn't have predicted. But what I'm really interested in are the cultural institutions that aren't up for a vote, like your, you know, the, 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 cli- the climate and important cultural institutions on the left, like the academy, um, elite media, the climate of important cultural institutions on the right, like conservative media, these, um, the, you know, the white evangelical establishment, um, have they taken the lessons of the center holding in the election? And that's where I'm, that's where I think it, let me give you my optimistic case, Yasha, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong. I think the existence of entities like Persuasion, which has a lot of people who have real cultural influence, who write for you fearlessly, that the defiance of people like Glenn Greedwald and Matt Iglesias, who are very different from each other uh, politically and very different from you uh, to a large extent, um, being openly defying of sort of their platforms and striking out of their own and immediately gaining large-scale followings. Um, the pushback, even from the House Democrats who don't have you know huge cultural followings. The existence of things like Heterodox Academy with Jonathan Haidt says that the raw sort of fear of confronting sort of an ascendant cultural left is beginning to diminish and that there is a backlash on the left to the radical left that has real, that, that's quite real, um, that has a growing audience, and that with each new voice that comes out fearlessly, it enables more voices to come out fearlessly. And maybe we've reached the high tide of, for lack of a better term, wokeism uh, culturally on the left. And then I'll talk about my theories on the right, but that's my optimistic take. Do you, is that, what do you think of that? Right, wrong, very, you know, I, I, I'm, it's not my world. So I'm much, I'm very interested in what you think. I, I, I take a certain amount of pride in uh, being reasonably good at predictions. Um, you know, I predicted the real threat that a four-time populism would pose to democracy uh, around the world before many others did. I read one of the really early articles um, uh, explaining why the coronavirus would be so dangerous and why we need to take uh, energetic measures to contain it. I remember. Um, I remember. On this topic, I have to say that I find it very hard to predict. Um, I agree with many of the arguments you just made. Um, uh, I would add another one to them, um, which is that a lot of the craziness on the left was driven by Donald Trump. Um, that's true, for example, of the view of America. Um, you know, I just started listening to Barack Obama's memoir, and he is trying to make the case that America is perfectible, that there are, you know, deep problems with the country and deep injustices in the country, but that the country is much more just today than it was 50 years ago, and that we should have um, the hope and the courage to believe that America will be much better than today, 50 years from now, and that together we don't need a revolution. We need uh, moderate, piecemeal, serious political reforms. Um, you know, it was hard to make that argument when the people who 
wanted to define America by white supremacy, to say that white supremacy is not the most important historic sin of America, but rather has from the foundation been its nature and will forever continue to be its nature, um, could point to Donald Trump and some of the things he says um, uh, sitting in the White House, right? And so I hope that um, the basic narrative of a woke left starts to look a lot less plausible with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris rather than Donald Trump in the White House. And, and that that uh, will lead to a change of tone in institutions like the New York Times. Um, you know, the impact of something uh, like these new ventures and like Substack uh, could cut both ways. So we've seen in the last days Matt Iglesias leave Vox, as you mentioned. Um, you know, Matt is really an interesting case because he is, uh, you know, I think an interesting and, and important writer, but pretty, pretty orthodox. I mean, he really is not out there. I mean, Glenn Greenwald, with whom I have deep disagreements, um, you, you know, is away from the mold of all kinds of politics. I mean, he is sort of Trump curious in various strange ways. At the same time, he is a huge cheerleader of, you know, the Chavez regime in Venezuela. I mean, you know, Matt Iglesias is, is clearly a center-left thinker who um, should fit comfortably into any democratic coalition. And yet his occasional criticisms of woke orthodoxy made his position at Vox, uh, if not untenable, then deeply un un uncomfortable to the extent that he gave up. Now, um, you know, on the one hand, this should breathe a living fear into institutions like Vox, because if they are not capable of, you know, keeping people like Matt Iglesias in their platforms, there's a real question as to whether they're going to be financially sustainable in the long run. On the other hand, of course, Substack as an uh, escape valve um, may make it easier for the orthodoxy to remain uh, and to, to keep governing within those institutions. Because rather than having to fight the fight within those institutions for those views to be heard and for the orthodoxies to be challenged, uh, people like Mediglesias leave Vox um, and the sort of wokeification of Vox uh, will continue at an even faster clip. Um, so I think one of the questions is, will there be large-scale media institutions uh, that can actually replace the New York Times, that can actually replace Vox, um, uh, that sort of supplant much of a readership. Um, and, you know, the proof of that has not yet arrived. I'd like to take a moment and uh, thank Remnant sponsor Donors Trust. Uh, Mark and Carrie have long managed their charitable giving through a national donor-advised fund. But in recent months, that provider went from being a neutral platform to questioning some of their grants to conservative causes, even turning down a gift to one. They looked into their local community foundation, but it didn't seem much better. Fortunately, some online searching led Mark and Carrie to a provider that reflects their values, Donors Trust. Donors Trust is unique among donor-advised funds because it was built with a certain community in mind, a community that believes in limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise as bedrock values worth fighting for. With Donors Trust's unique focus on this community, it can offer more personalized, nimble service than larger, more bureaucratic providers. As Mark reports, none of the other providers have the ideological element and protection that Donors Trust has. Already have a donor advised fund? Did you know you can easily roll that fund over to Donors Trust? You can, and in doing so, you'll gain a partner that understands your values. The team from Donors Trust works with donors of all levels of giving to protect your charitable legacy and help you achieve your charitable goals. 
Some of you might be considering a donor advised fund and why not? It's the simple tax-friendly secure way to give. So why not work with the fund that matches your values? For our listeners, that's Donors Trust. Get your free donor prospectus to see how Donors Trust can be your principled charitable partner at donorstrust.org slash dingo. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. So, you know, as I look at all of this, Yasha, I say, okay, here's a couple of things. Here's a couple of things that are good. And to track, you know, what you're saying about Substack, some problems, some, some issues. So one, if you're on the right, part of the narrative has long been Nobody, where are the people on the left with the guts to take this on? Because um, left illiberalism is not going to be solved by critique from the right. It's just not. I mean, people on the left tend to thrive <laughs> on critique from the right and vice versa. If the right is coming after them, um, that's a resume bullet point, not a, not a matter of real concern. But when you are critiqued from within your own tribe, it tends to sting more and perhaps to have some more influence. So the narrative on the right has been nobody has the guts to take on the quote unquote woke left uh, on the left. Well, as we see what's happened with persuasion, as we see what's happened with Glenn Greenwald, as we see what's happened with uh, Matt Iglesias, as we're seeing, uh, as I said earlier with Heterodox Academy, that seems to be saying, yeah, there are people with guts on the left to take on illiberalism on the left. Um, and then w- even though uh, Matt Iglesias is not fighting about this within Vox anymore, a Matt Iglesias free to say what he thinks about sort of these trends, or Glenn Greenwald free to say what he thinks about these trends, that he, he has a really interesting long post uh, that he put up recently about the ACLU, for example, is more valuable in many ways than, say, a Glenn Greenwald constrained, maybe. Uh, you know, I don't know all the dynamics within, within Vox. Um, but it's only, it can only be a start. This isn't the culmination. This is sort of the beginning of a, this is the beginning of a uh, left-wing resistance, center-left resistance to illiberalism on the left. And it's interesting when we talk about Substack, there was this, you know, the Columbia Journalism Review piece about Substack, and they kind of skipped over the fact that two of the top three outlets on Substack were conservative. The Dispatch, where I am, is number one. We're the top viewed, top revenue outlet on Substack, and number three was The Bulwark. And what was interesting about both of those is they're dissenting from a lot of right-wing media institutions. And so it feels to me like what we have here is on both the right and the left, a movement that says, hey, yeah, there are people who are willing to take on illiberalism within their own tribe. They do, they do have a place to land where they are free to speak and, and are reaching wide audiences, but it's only a start. This is not the, anywhere close to the culmination. I mean, I'm sure you have a vision for persuasion that uh, is yet to be realized, just like we have a vision for the dispatch that is yet to be realized. So, um, you know, let, let me reframe this a little bit outside of the context of these technological questions of Stack and so on, which is... Uh, you know, one of the frustrations that I had in this debate within the left for the last few years is the disease of what I sometimes call not-too-farism. 
So when a lot mm -hmm. of people were calling for some of those liberal things, the response from moderate critics was, well, look, I, I, I see what you're doing and I admire it and it's completely right, but aren't you going a little too far? And that is just a really bad argument because people understandably <laughs> say, look, when we're dealing with remedying racial injustice, for example, how can you go too far? You know, like that just means you don't care enough. And that's a pretty right. good rejoinder. Um, and it's also misdescribing the nature of the disagreement, because really, I think what we have is a completely different vision of a kind of country that we want to live in. Um, you know, I want to live in a country in which we've overcome many of those racial injustices and we're capable of emphasizing what we have in common rather than what divides us. Uh, we're capable of paying somewhat less attention to questions of race and identity um, because we have uh, uh, tackled many of the injustices that now exist. Um, I think a lot of people on the quote-unquote woke left um, believe that actually identity is so fundamental to what it is to be human. And we as Americans have so little in common, whereas every subnational identity group has so much in common that an ideal America would still be deeply embedded in con con continual vigilance and awareness of, you know, whether you speak as a member of this group or as a member of that group, and so on and so forth. This is a fundamental difference in vision of a kind of country we want to build. Now, I do think one of the advantages of the last uh, months and year is that this debate has broken over, uh, has broken open as a debate about the kind of future we we hope for and we seek. Um, and I am ultimately optimistic that and confident that the vision that uh, people like me have of what we want the country to look like is so much more appealing and so much more rooted in common right. sense and so much more rooted, frankly, in the preferences of the overwhelming majority of Americans, including the overwhelming majority of so-called people of color, um, that will win that debate. Now, you know, how and when will we win that debate? Will it take five years or 25 years? Right. Um, you know, will the New York Times basically run itself into the ground because it is already so captured by one kind of set of views of these things? Or will it be able to course correct in order to actually speak uh, to more than 5 or 8% of the U.S. population? That I, I genuinely am unsure about. Yeah, you know, I, it's, so I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. And I, and I think that the, I, one of the things that gives me a, some hope along these lines is I feel like a lot of these fights are cyclical and I've been through a cycle before. Um, so if you go back to the early, I mean, to the late eighties, early nineties, and I, I, I got into law school in 1991, there was a growth of explosive growth of speech codes on college campuses. And, and they weren't disguising what they were about. I mean, the, the, the purpose of these policies was to restrict speech. I mean, this was, this was advertised as the way to um, uh, make diversity more, um, it, to, to make diversity possible on campus. It was, there was an amount of intolerance, especially on elite campuses, that eclipses what we see today um, the actual shout downs on campus were very common. I was shouted down more than one time, especially in my first and second years of law school. 
Um, the kinds of reprisals that you see today online were happening in the real world. For example, um, there was an individual who I believe is in the Federalist Society. Uh, I can't remember if he was Federalist Society or not, but he, he wrote a conservative column in the Harvard newspaper, the law, the law school newspaper, and people took uh, gay porn and they pasted like, you know, literally paste the, the old school form of copy pasting his face onto the gay porn and put it on uh, around campus. People would call future employers to try to get people fired. I mean, this is 91, 92. It was so bad that uh, in my third year, I can't remember if it was GQ or Esquire, wrote a piece about Harvard called, Harvard Law School called Beirut on the Charles. And this was when Beirut was like Mosul or Fallujah and it's, it's brutal violence. And, and then all of a sudden, it began to recede. <laughs> Interestingly enough, one of the instruments of the rest restoration of small-l liberalism at Harvard Law School was Elena Kagan, who came in as dean she went to Federalist Society meetings. She actually said out loud, I love the Federalist Society. Uh, there were T-shirts printed, you know, Federalist Society printed T-shirts saying, I love the Federalist Society, Elena Kagan. And there was this sort of season. It wasn't that Harvard got less. It was still a quite progressive place, but there was a season between then and sort of the, the reemergence of some of the illiberalism in recent years where the place was honestly, truly one of the better places for a conservative student to go to law school um, in all of America. And so these things, they ebb and they flow. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons why I sort of have a, a longer term level of optimism is that this illiberalism is actually quite miserable. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of fear attached to it. Um, there's a lot of, you know, people are looking over their shoulder because they always want to remain on the right side of some ever shifting standards and things that are actually miserable, especially when there are alternatives present in a society, um, don't tend to have as much staying power. And so, you know, that's to, to one of the things. To enforce misery, I'm, you usually need troops, right? I yes. mean, you can, you can sustain a lot of misery for a long time if you control the army, right? But, yes. But, but it's harder to do that within a society that thankfully remains fundamentally free. Um, look, I have two thoughts about that. One is an agreement, which is um, that the great, another great thing that gives me hope, and it's a, a different way of glossing what you were saying is that this really is unworkable, right? Like a yeah. lot of the orthodoxy that is now rising destroys institutions and just makes it impossible for people to deal with each other. If you read something like Robin D'Angelo, you know, she thinks that every time a white person interrupts somebody who's not white, they are uh, not just uh, 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 sort of engaging in a racist microaggression, um, they're bringing centuries of white supremacy to bear on that person. Um, there are thankfully many friendships in this country, many relationships in this country between people who are white and people who are non-white. And it's impossible to be friends with somebody without sometimes interrupting each other. It's certainly impossible to be in a relationship with each other without sometimes interrupting each other. And people in those friendships and relationships do not want to conceive of a world in that way because it actually would make their connection impossible, right? So this is one of the great ways in which that kind of mindset is actually self-limiting. Most people will ultimately reject it. And I think what's true of institutions as well. You can throw out due process uh, for a little while, and that might seem like a good idea, 
But the first time that it becomes very obvious that you perpetrated a huge injustice to somebody as a result, or the first time that a court uh, uh, condemns you to millions of dollars in, in damages because of what you've done, um, you'll learn that it may be wise to course correct. So in those ways, I, I agree that there is a kind of self-undermining nature of, of some of this misery, as you call it. On the other hand, it's interesting that in your story, you know, the magazine that published a, a critical piece about what was going on at Harvard was Esquire. I don't think Esquire would publish that piece today. You might get it in some no. stack and perhaps that's enough. But the extent of capture of elite institutions that we see now is, I think, unprecedented. And so I'm having a little bit of trouble predicting um, how much more difficult that will make it to push back. Let's take a moment and thank our sponsor, ExpressVPN. Ever wondered how free to access sites like Facebook make all their money? Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on and then selling your valuable data. When you use ExpressVPN, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. And ExpressVPN couldn't be easier to set up. You just tap one button on your phone or computer and you're protected. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and internet bad guys. By visiting Jonas special link, you'll get an extra three months of ExpressVPN service for free at expressvpn.com slash remnant. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash remnant. expressvpn.com slash remnant to protect your data today. Full disclosure, um, if anything sounds disjointed about what I'm about to say in response to Yasha, uh, we had an unprecedented tech collapse at the French house. Um, I... My dispatch colleagues know that I lord my technological advantage over them constantly. And the biblical principle of pride goeth before the fall has been fulfilled because what did I have? I had a tech breakdown requiring restarts, requiring all kinds of backup recordings. But I'm back now, and hopefully everything's um, back online. <laughs> so... Anyway, uh, responding to what Yasha said several minutes ago in the real world, uh, I, you know, I would say one of the things that I think is, is um, y- you pointed out the, the classic conundrum here that we have, and that is on the good side, there's resistance to this immiserating movement. On the bad side, an elite institution or a, uh, a prestige or, or legacy media institution like Esquire or GQ is not there. It would no longer be the check on illiberalism that it was in the early 90s. It would be fostering illiberalism. But at the same time, you've got more opportunities and more avenues to speak than you did at the, in the early 1990s. I'm, I'm just, I think on balance, and I'm going to write about this today in my newsletter, I'm taking the glass is half full approach to this in part that I think what's being established pretty clearly is that there are people on both sides of the spectrum who have the stomach to fight against illiberalism within their own tribe. And, and, and you have to start somewhere. But Yasha, let me, you know, I, I've imposed upon more of your time than I thought we would because of all our technical difficulties. Where do you think what do you think? Put on your prediction hat again. 
What do you think is the future of right-wing illiberalism now that Trump has been defeated? I think it was easy to sort of highlight and spotlight the danger of right-wing illiberalism when a when you had a right-wing populist as the most powerful person in the world. Well, now he is dethroned. The right does not have a meaningful foothold in a, most of the major American cultural institutions. Um, what do you think the future of right-wing authoritarianism or illiberalism is post-Trump? Well, let's distinguish between internationally and within the United States. I mean, internationally, um, you know, populists in general and right-wing populists in particular still continue to rule in some of the most important uh, democracies in the world. Um, you know, when you look at India, when you look at Brazil, when you look at Turkey, uh, when you look at a reasonably important country like Poland, they are all ruled by right-wing populists. And of course, you have some important countries like Mexico that are ruled by left-wing uh, uh, populists as well. Um, so, uh, you know, even though I think Biden's victory against Trump is the most important battle that we've won so far in the fight against the rise of this authoritarian populism, um, it's going to be a long war um, and there's going to be defeats to lament as well as victories to celebrate. Um, you know, when it comes to the United States, you know, the question is, what does Trumpism look like without Trump? Uh, or might mm -hmm. Trump actually somehow come back in 2024? Uh, a couple of thoughts here. The first is that we really don't have that answer and we won't have that answer until at least 2024. Um, you know, American political parties have leaders when they own the White House and they have leaders when they're in the middle of a presidential campaign and have already chosen their candidate. Uh, during uh, the periods when they're out of office and when we're not in the middle of a presidential campaign, there simply isn't an effective mechanism for um, selecting a leader. Is Donald Trump going to be the leader of the Republican Party two months from now? Is it Mitch McConnell? Is it somebody else? We really don't have a meaningful answer to that question. So a lot depends on how those 2024 primaries go. Um, there's reason to fear that Trump will retain enough loyalty to ensure that either he or one of his family members or somebody who runs in his kind of general political lane, perhaps with his endorsement or support, uh, will become the Republican presidential nominee. Uh, but when you look at the last uh, five or six nominees the Republican Party had, each was in quite significant ways different from the one who came before. And so it is perfectly possible that you will get uh, quite a different figure winning in 2024. I've been quite right. struck by the evolution of the Labour Party in Britain. I, I don't want to compare Jeremy Corbyn to Donald Trump. I don't think they're equivalent. Um, but you had somebody quite extreme, much more extreme than the history of a party, take over. You had deep skepticism among the more moderate forces within Labour that it was ever going to be possible to dislodge the far left from a party leadership. And now Keir Starmer, who is in many ways a flawed uh, politician, who was much more complicit with Jeremy Corbyn than he should have been while Corbyn was in charge, has managed to take over uh, and quite effectively uh, led the Labour Party towards moderation and even suspended Jeremy Corbyn from membership in the party. Um, uh, so that gives me a little bit of hope that... You know, it's too easy to say whatever the state of a political party now is will continue to be the state of a political party right. three or four years from now. And if Republicans are, a are willing to go along with really disgusting attacks 
on the integrity of the election that Trump is carrying out after losing, then surely we're not going to be able to stand up to him in 2024. Uh, not so not so quick, because there is going right. to be an open primary. And, you know, I think it's very difficult to predict who will emerge uh, as a victor of that. Well, there's some interesting, you know, when you're when you're talking about the the history of our political parties in response to grotesque corruption, for example, it's it, when you look back at the transition from the leadership of the Republican Party from Nixon to Reagan, two very different figures. Reagan was not exactly a leading dissident against Richard Nixon in the 1970s. He was not somebody who was one of the key figures in the GOP in opposing Nixon, and yet he was a key figure in turning the page away from Nixon. So I do think it's incredibly difficult to predict based on who's behaving in what way today as to how people will behave in in four years. Well, let, let me ask you another question, and then uh, you know, I, you've been super generous with your time in the in the context of repeated technical difficulties. But here here's an interesting question. So Trump is um, a unique figure in a number of ways. You know, he's a new, unique figure as a matter of temperament. He's a unique figure as far as his biography before he became president. He's also a unique figure in the sense that he may be actually someone who when a law enforcement official takes a close look at his resources, uh, his financial uh, uh, arrangements and his in his finances, finds indictable crimes. You know, there's a Manhattan DA investigation ongoing. There's already, I mean, his law, his former lawyer and fixer is in jail uh, right now, in part for campaign finance violations. And so, for the first time, really since Nixon. We're in a position where a president of the United States may be leaving office under threat of potential criminal prosecution, which would be an incredibly weighty decision, incredibly weighty decision by a prosecutor to bring claims against a recently defeated American president. And I, I have to be honest with you, Yasha, I go back and forth on this. If there are, if there's probable, I, I'm a firm believer that a president is not is, a, is an American citizen. They're not a, in a category of special immunity. At the same time, in an era of very low trust in institutions, could you be throwing a, sort of a, a grenade into American, already highly polarized American politics by indicting an ex-president, even if the evidence is sufficient to issue an indictment? Um, and you know, this is something that not a lot of people are talking about right now because we're still in the, uh, you know, in the election contests. But a part of me thinks that this could become a very live issue soon. And I'd love to get your thoughts on the dynamics here. What, what, is, what are the risks, rewards of allowing justice to pursue its course against Donald Trump in the same way it would any other citizen? I have two thoughts. I mean, one is that... <sighs> There's no good choices here. I mean, right. the good choice would have been for the American people not to send somebody to the White House who, even at that time, we had good reason to fear had committed actual crimes, right? Um, yeah. Once you have a recently departed president, uh, some, a president who's recently departed from office, uh, who has actually committed potentially serious crimes, who has potentially committed serious crimes, um, there really is no good option because prosecuting them 
will lead to a deeply partisan response that you're doing exactly what Donald Trump so irresponsibly threatened in 2016, which is lock up a political opponent. Um, it is going to raise the possibility that just as impeachment has increasingly become a partisan um, tool to be used against any president you dislike, um, you will wind up with prosecutions of former presidents as a tool by prosecutors against presidents you dislike. And both of those are terrible. Now, at the same time, if he has, in fact, committed crimes, letting him off just because he had the good luck of being elected as president at some point sets a terrible precedent for what elected officials can get away with and the incentives for criminals to build electoral followings uh, so that um, you know it's just too difficult and risky to prosecute. Them. So I think either choice you make is going to have very deep costs. Um, you know, I grew up Jewish in Germany and I was raised thinking that, uh, you know, Konrad Adenauer, the first post-war chancellor of the Federal Republic, was a, a very morally compromised figure because he did not take seriously the prosecution of leading Nazis. And in fact, um, he even had um, uh, you know, the person who'd written the official commentary on the Nuremberg race laws as his chief of staff. Hmm. Um, and I continue to be very troubled by those choices of Adenauer's. At the same time, I recognize that West German democracy and today German democracy is probably stronger for it because right. a lot of people who had been implicated in the Nazi regime could go right back to pretending to be Democrats and pretending to be decent, upstanding citizens. Uh, and that made them more willing to accept the new regime. Um, so I don't know what kind of choice Adenauer should have made, or in retrospect, what choice I would make in Adenauer's position. Now, I, I'm not aiming to, to, to compare uh, the Third Reich with, with the Trump era. I, 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 for very important reasons, think that that is the wrong comparison. But when you think about uh, transitional justice, you always have to think about, uh, you know, the conflict you face between ensuring that people get the just desserts on the one hand and making sure that you gain greater political stability and a lowering of a political temperature on the other hand. And those two goals are going to push in different directions. And either choice you make is going to involve some really painful compromise. Right. Um, I, I do want to say one other thing, though, which is um, perhaps more optimistic. And that is that, you know, I think on both sides, including in the mind of Donald Trump himself, people have overestimated the extent to which his appeal was based on being extreme, being racist. Mm -hmm. kicking and punching the basic norms of democracy and the basic norms of decency. I think there's, there's, there's a number of Americans to whom that was definitely appealing. It may have helped Trump win the primaries in 2016. It is not what allowed him to become president. I think to most Americans, to an extent that sort of highly politically informed people tend to underestimate it was his image 
as somebody who's always been a winner, who right. succeeded supposedly at everything he'd done in his life, um, as somebody who's glamorous, as somebody who had power and was going to have more power, but made him look appealing. A lot of those things are quickly giving way. Um, yes, some diehard Trump fans will continue to believe that the election was stolen, but I don't think that most Americans will believe that. So for the first time in his life, he really is a loser. And, um, you know, he no longer has power or he's about to have to hand over power. And, and I do hope that Trump will look a lot less appealing to many Americans when, when he's defined by failure and no longer holds political power. And so, you know, yes, it's possible that Trump will have Trump TV and will continue to be at the heart of our politics for the next four years, you know, this really powerful figure who the Republican Party lives in fear of. I could also imagine that he will come to look uh, to a greater and greater number of people, more and more ridiculous, more and more weak, more and more like a has-been, more and more like somebody who's not in the second or third season of The Apprentice, but the 11th or 12th season of The Apprentice. <laughs> right. And for he still has his devoted fans, most people have switched off the TV. Yeah, you know, one of the things you see in politics, but you know, in American electoral politics, and I'm sure everywhere, is you have, there's a certain level of charisma that you have to have to win, but then winning has its own charisma in the sense that when you win, the, the, the way in which you win, the, the one, the way, the persona that you have, the, the way you conducted yourself, that is seen as the pattern, that is seen as the way to do things. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen some little, you know, Trump mini-me's popping up in conservative world, people who imitate his philosophy, his style, and, and people who imitate his, uh, the way in which he, you know, clubs his opponents and owns the libs, et cetera. And the question that I have is over the long term, you, you articulated it very well, how much charisma or how, how attractive is that style when it's not tied to winning, when it's instead right. tied to a guy who's trying to compete with Fox News rather than possessing all of the trappings of the Oval Office? And, and I, that's, again, where I'm relatively optimistic. And, you know, one of the things you see in American politics is P, electorates will make pretty dramatic changes without sort of going through any sort of, you know, hand-wringing that says, we're, we're sorry we elected Richard Nixon. Now we're going to elect, you know, Jimmy Carter. Or then we're sorry, you know, Jimmy Carter was a failed president. We're sorry about that. We're going to go with Ronald Reagan. But they just make a big change. Mm. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see in the GOP electorate going forward after a once the law sinks in, because it has not sunk in right now, a lot of the big big media MAGA voices are really hyping the polling miss. But once the loss sinks in, it's going to be very interesting to me to see if that style that Trump has is as compelling. And I'm thinking it won't be. I could be totally wrong about this, Yasha, but I'm thinking it won't be. I think the, it was the marriage of the style to the power of the Oval Office and to the, to the relief uh, that GOP folks felt when Hillary Clinton lost. All of those things together created a specific stew. <laughs> they created a specific political culture. And all that's left now, the power is gone, will be gone soon. Biden will be president, but all that will be left will be the tweets. 
And I don't think that's going to be enough. I mean, I could be wrong in 2024, we could be doing a podcast and I say, Yasha, here we go again. But I, I just don't think that the tweets will be enough. I don't think that temperament will be enough and it will eventually be quite off-putting. Well, and look, in, in 2016, Donald Trump was able to promise incredible things. Yeah. Now, you know, I didn't believe any of those promises at the time. And I think most Americans didn't believe most of the promises. But they thought, you know what? This guy has done a lot in his life. He's saying that he's going to do all these incredible things. You know, if he only gives me 10% of those or only 20% yeah. of those, it's still pretty good. So let's give it a try, right? Uh, you know, it was very interesting to see in 2020 how hard Trump found it to find any kind of coherent slogan. Um, you know, he wanted to claim credit, but it wasn't clear what he was going to claim credit for. Um, he experimented with a few different uh, slogans, none of which really worked. And in the end, he just went back to make America great again, which is a confusing message when you've been in power for four years. Um, you know, will he have a better message, a better slogan in four years? Or will he just spend the next four years looking like a sore loser, you know, blaming everybody, including Fox News, for his defeat and just becoming, frankly, boring? I mean, this is something that, that, that also struck me in the contrast between 2016 and 2020. In 2016, famously, infamously, and, you know, people uh, sort of really blame CNN for this, you would see for, for hours the empty lectern at which Donald Trump was going to speak. Right. Why? Because there was something genuinely fascinating and transgressive about Trump that even sort of really devoted critics of his, like you and I, there was something mesmerizing about it. And, and, and you never knew what he was going to say next. And, and it felt like it mattered what he's going to say next. By 2020... The networks didn't show that many Trump speeches anymore. They certainly didn't show the empty lectern in anticipation of what he might say. Because people had learned that he probably say something crazy, but he never seems to actually follow up on it. And it's irrelevant. And he said so many crazy things in the past. It's kind of a little bit boring, right? Um, you made a prediction about Trump. I'm going to make an even more hazardous prediction about Joe Biden. <laughs> um, people may underestimate Joe Biden. And one of the reasons for that is that Biden is not a, a charismatic figure who dominates public discourse. And so it's easy to think that he doesn't really have a devoted following and is not going to be able to get much done. Uh, but as I know, following somebody like Angela Merkel, there can be a strange power in being what one commentator said about Merkel, which is minimally invasive. You know, even after you know, nearly 20 years that Merkel is in power, Germans still aren't that fed up with her because she's just not present enough. She's just not larger than life enough. She's just not dominant enough um, to really get on your nerves, right? And that the same may be true of Joe Biden, that people think, you know what, this guy is decent and he's reasonable. He'll hold a big speech every now and again. He's not in my face all of the time. I could take four, four more years of that. And by the way, I could take four more years of not having to worry about what the president tweets. And by the way, I could take four more years of not really thinking about politics all that much. 
By the way, I could take four more years of thinking about basketball or baseball or football <laughs> rather than the president. All of that might turn out to be quite appealing. Yeah. It's, it's going to be very interesting, I think, to see also what happens in the next 60 days or so regarding the coronavirus because um, we're in the middle of an explosion unlike anything that we've seen. And it feels as if, in large part, the federal government and the Trump administration is MIA, banking on the vaccine coming. And I, I just don't know what kind of wave of illness and death we have in store for us over the next several months. And that could also, um, I mean, not only traumatize the nation at the most personal of levels, but uh, reflect and in, in shape sort of the memory and the legacy of this period of American life in a way that's really un, unpredictable um, how, how we'll see it as time passes. But the reports I'm hearing, not just in the raw numbers, but from folks in rural hospitals, for example, who are looking at, um, you know, expanded IC, expanding their ICUs without the staff to expanding to expand their ICUs. And I just shudder to think of what's coming in the next 30 to 60 days. And look, I, I hope that the wave that is still building is going to be less terrible and less deadly than it now seems. Um, and I hope that instead of litigating the outcome of the election, the Trump administration devotes its last two months in office yeah. to um, saving American lives. Yep. Um, if they fail to do that, it, it will help to define the legacy of this failed president. Right. Well, on that downer <laughs> of a note... <laughs> Um, stay safe, Yasha. everybody. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as Thanksgiving rolls on, be safe. Uh, I know my family, we're curtailing some of our normal events. Uh, we're trying to have a very safe Thanksgiving because I'm very, I'm, I'm afraid of what's going to happen as people pack into homes in cold days. Um, but, um, be safe, everybody. And, uh, Yasha, thank you. Thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for your insights, and uh, I will see you on Substack, my friend. See you on Substack. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.